Chapter Twelve of Nequa, or the Problem of the Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Twelve, Part Two, The Institute of School Superintendents concluded. In order to carry on the war, paper money was issued and paid out to the soldiers, sailors, and citizens for their services. This money performed all the functions of gold, and notwithstanding the fact that the people were engaged in a most destructive war, it stimulated all branches of business and brought on an era of great industrial prosperity. But after the war was over. This same paper money, which had been paid to the people as the original creditors of the government, and for which they had signed receipts in full for their services, was converted into interest-bearing bonds, and these same soldiers, sailors, and citizens were taxed to pay to those who speculated on their necessities in the hour of danger, the same debt that had originally been due to themselves. And for which they had received legal tender paper money, but had the process of funding the legal tender debt-paying medium of the country into bonds ceased at this point, the international gold power of the world would never have been able to financially subjugate the people of this country as under the law creating the bonds. The debt was payable in legal tender paper money. So another step must be taken. The debt had been created, and a large portion of the money had been burned, but the bonds did not call for gold except for interest. Hence, a law was enacted resuming specie payments, and the bonds were made payable in coin. And now the people who had taken paper dollars for their services in saving the Union were taxed to pay gold dollars to the money kings for the paper dollars they had received. We can scarcely convince at this distant day how it was possible for our ancestors to have been so stupid as not to see through this outrage that was perpetrated upon them, but nevertheless. History records the fact that for thirty odd years after this bare-faced legalized robbery had been committed, a vast majority of men were voting their approval, which was proclaimed throughout the world as the triumph of patriotic statesmanship. As the direct result of this kind of financial negotiation. Which converted the debt-paying medium of the country into an interest-bearing debt, the wages of labor and the prices of products steadily declined. Business enterprises were wounded up in bankruptcy at the rate of more than a thousand per month, and millions of workmen were forced into idleness and thronged the highways in all parts of the country, demoralized, degraded. And becoming a sure menace to civilization. As a result of the war between the states, chattel slavery had been abolished. But another form of industrial servitude, the wage system, had fallen heir to all of its worst features. The owners of the chattel slaves 
had the power to be oppressive and cruel, but personal interest demanded that the slave should always be provided with food, shelter, and raiment. While the wage slave could be turned out to starve when from sickness, age, or any other cause, it was more profitable to dispense with his services. The wage slave who must work or starve was serving a much more exacting and cruel master than the most heartless owner of chattel slaves ever could have been. While the slave owner had always been very careful not to give his chattel slaves an opportunity to run away, the wage slave very often lived in a perpetual dread that his master would pay him off and tell him to go. Conditions such as these could not fail to arouse a widespread feeling of dissatisfaction, and as every man had a vote, political agitation was the logic result of the situation, and the politicians were kept busy in defending old policies and proposing new ones, all for the professed purpose of securing better conditions for the great masses of the people. A slight glance at a few of the popular economic and political ideas of that time indicates the average status of popular intelligence, and is therefore useful in tracing the evolutionary forces which were operating at that time for the elimination of selfishness and the establishment of equity in human affairs. As the times grew harder. The politicians of the old school told the people that the overproduction of wealth was the cause of all their poverty and distress, and for a time the great masses seemed to be satisfied with this explanation. They did not pause to inquire how it was possible for them to produce so much food and clothing and build so many houses, and for that reason be compelled to go hungry. Dress in rocks and be without shelter. Further on, this same class of politicians told the people that what they needed was to make their silver and paper money redeemable in gold, and then they would have a dollar that would purchase more. And a majority of the people decided in favor of the gold standard. They did not reflect. That the larger the purchasing power of the dollar might be, the more of their labor it would require in order to get the dollar, and so, without understanding what they were doing, the laboring mass of the country actually voted to decrease the money-earning power of their own labor. But had they decided in favor of more money, while their wages would have gone up. Their cost of living would have increased, and they would not have been materially benefited, except incidentally, as a part of the great debt class, which was required to pay interest as part of the price of everything purchased for consumption. As we may add, that but for the fact that the great masses who produced wealth by their labor constituted a debt class. The advantages and disadvantages between a larger or smaller volume of money would have formed a perfect equation, and the condition of the masses would neither have been better nor worse, 
as in either case, the banks would have determined the amount that was permitted to circulate among the people by making or withholding loans as might at the time best promote their own interests. While the gold power was international in its character and not royal to any country, it always took an active interest in moulding the opinions of the dominant political parties of all countries. It was necessary for it to have at least two favourites among the dominant parties, so that by turns they might spring reforms, so-called, based on half-truths, to attract the constantly increasing number of dissatisfied voters. The demand for an increased volume of money in order to rise the wages of labor and the price of farm products was a question of this character, and it was sufficient to sidetrack and head off a more searching investigation as to the real causes of poverty. This was met by the demand for a better quality of money that would purchase more goods. The arguments in favor of both contained half-truths which were developed upon with great force, but the success of either still left the gold power directly or indirectly in a position to control the situation. The same thing was true in regard to the tariff question which the gold power made a dominant issue between its favorite parties. The question itself could be used to call attention away from the question of finance, which had a more direct bearing upon the vital matter of exchange, and was therefore more likely to educate the people to a point where they could no longer be deluded by an ingenious discussion of half-truths. This question, in order to be made available for the purposes of the gold power, must necessarily have two seemingly antagonistic political parties to go before the people. One party advocated a tariff for revenue with free trade arguments, while the other advocated a tariff for protection and appealed to the laboring classes to maintain liberal wages for themselves by voting for a high tariff that would exclude foreign goods. The positions taken by these parties were about equally delusive, and neither would have in the least delayed the dangerous encroachments of the gold power. A tariff for revenue could in no sense be a free trade party, but it did propose to rise revenue by duties on imports. This duty would of course be paid by the people as part of the price of the goods which they consumed, and hence the tax would be in proportion to their expenses without any reference to their incomes. Those who expanded their entire incomes in consumption would be taxed upon the whole, while those who expanded only a small fraction would be taxed only on the fraction so expanded. As a system of taxation, it is difficult to conceive of one that would be more unequal in its bearings and more oppressive to people of small incomes. On the other hand, the Tariff for Protection Party 
proposed to make the duties on imports so high that foreign productions would be kept out and the home market secured to the employers of home labor. This, it was claimed, would enable the employers of labor to pay higher wages, which was true. But the selfishness of the heartless employer was always in favor of keeping wages at a minimum, and the noble, generous employer could not afford to pay any more. If he did, his heartless competitor would undersell him in the market and destroy his business. Hence, we are not surprised that the statistics proved the tendency of wages to be toward a minimum under both parties. That is, a sum barely sufficient to provide food, clothing, and shelter, and to enable the workman to rise another toilers to take his place when he was no longer able to work. Under this tariff for protection policy, the revenues raised were just as oppressive and unjust to people of small incomes as under the policy of a tariff for revenue earning. But with this additional burden, that the increased price of home products was assessed upon the people in the same unequal manner, but on the other side, more home labor could be employed, which benefited the workmen in protected industries at the expense of the classes which were not protected. Of course, even the tariff for protection party. Which had so much to say in favor of holding the home market for home products, never seriously intended to exclude foreign products, as that would have put an end to all revenue. This delusive series of a tariff for revenue and a tariff for protection served the purposes of the gold power. By calling the attention of the people away from the real difficulty which stood in the way of wealth producers, all that the people needed was an opportunity to apply their labor to natural resources, and be enabled to exchange their products for products of equal value produced by the labor of others. The foreign trade of the country was a matter of small importance compared with the home trade. If at almost any time during the later part of the transaction period, the people of this country had been guaranteed just such rations as were provided for soldiers or even convicts, there would have been no surplus for exportation, and had the whole people been provided with all the clothing that was needed to keep them well clad, it would have been taken the entire product of wool, flax. Cotton and leather, but the press of that day, religious as well as secular, was to such a great extent under the control of the gold power, that facts such as these were kept away from the mass of the people, and it may be added in this connection that the educational system of the country was controlled by this same power to suppress the truth on economic questions. And many eminent scholars were removed from professorships in the higher institutions of learning because they refused to teach such sophistries as suited the purposes of the gold power. In our very brief mention of the political agitations of that time, we have only referred to the leading measures advocated by the dominant political parties. It is due, however, to even that 
benighted age to state that at every step taken by the international gold power to financially conquer the world, a few of the more enlightened and self-sacrificing spirits boldly exposed the financial wrongs which were being perpetrated against the people for the still further enrichment of the money kings of the old world and the agents and co-workers in the great centers of wealth in this country. But these courageous, clear-headed, and humanity-loving pioneers of a higher civilization were thrown down as dangerous agitators and enemies of law and order, and every full episode was applied to them. If in business they were boycotted, and if belonging to the ranks of labor, they were blacklisted and in many cases imprisoned on false charges, and some were even executed for crimes which they did not commit, and yet the measures of reform they advocated along political lines were usually of such a nature that had they been enacted into law they would only have prolonged, for a few decades perhaps, the false system which pauperized and degraded the toiling millions. So much for the political agitations which had for their ostensible object the improvement of the economic condition of the great masses of the people, yet they did much good as a means of educating the more intelligent into a better understanding of the situation, and revealed the apparently utter hopelessness of ever being able to secure necessary reforms by political action, as no matter how pure at first might be the objects of a political party, just as soon as it was successful, the officers were in sight, the work of corruption set in, and its principles became subordinate in the minds of its leaders to the more profitable occupation of office-seeking. But other more potent factors than political agitation were at work among the mass in the shape of great industrial organizations of the farmers and wage workers. These organizations, as a rule, were strictly non-political. The farmers sought to secure higher prices for the products of the farm without any regard for the interests of the millions of wage workers and others upon whom they depended for a market. Another object of the farmers was to reduce their cost of living by securing lower prices on their implements and other supplies, by concentrating their trade and taking advantage of the competition between dealers, they often succeeded in securing very much reduced prices on goods, and this furnished what was regarded as a legitimate excuse for reducing the wages of the employees engaged in their manufacture. This reduction of wages crippled the market for farm products and offended both the employer and the workman as in the end the farmers defeated themselves and succeeded in arraying all other classes of people against them. But it was the wage workers who suffered the most from the great oligarchy of wealth, which had been established in the name of the people for the express purpose of exacting profits from the industrial classes. 
they organized the trade unions, which ultimately federated into one great national organization, with a view to securing higher wages and fewer hours of labor, without any regard to the interests of the consumers of their products. The number of workmen in these trade unions were at all times but a small fraction of the multitude, which depended upon wages. As a rule, the purposes and methods of these labor organizations were in practice, if not in theory, based upon the same false principles that characterized the industrial despotism against which they were protesting. Selfishness was a distinguishing characteristic and a fatal defeat. The skilled workmen who had employment cared but little for the non-union workmen of his own craft, except as a possible competitor for his job, and nothing whatever for the great masses of common laborers, who were so numerous and so poor that organization could do them no good as a means of maintaining wages. The union workmen recognized no interest in common with the unemployed outside of his own fraternity. Instead of bonding together to devise ways and means by which all could find employment, the trade unions sought only to secure work and maintaining wages for the comparatively small number who were members in good standing. Hence, in case of strikes and lockouts, the unemployed workmen were actuated by the same selfish motives, and did not hesitate to take that place whenever they could be protected from violence, and whenever they did so, the union workmen made war upon them, while they recognized the relation of master and servant as one that was to be perpetrated. They denied the right of the scraps, as they were called, to accept employment from their masters, no matter how destitute they might be. Neither did they question the right of employers, who were in the days of the old civilization were principally powerful corporations, to control the enactments and the enforcement of the laws. As a rule, the workmen divided their voting power between the political parties, which were controlled by their masters, with such evident inability to grasp the situation in which they were placed. It is not strange that the employers were enabled to obtain absolute control of every branch of government, state and national, legislative, executive, and judicial, notwithstanding the fact that every labor had a vote which counted just as much as that of the most wealthy corporation magnates. Conspiracy laws were enacted, which could be used for their suppression as occasion required. The right of trial by jury was denied by the courts, and the champions of labor were imprisoned for long terms for disobeying the mandates of the courts. Finally, the Supreme Court, in the case of a sailor who had refused to serve for the period for which he had hired, decided that his employer had a right to hold him in bondage until the expiration of the contract, that the ownership over himself had ceased for the time specified, and that the constitutional provision which prohibited involuntary servitude 
did not apply to such as him. One of the labor papers of that time characterized this opinion of the court as the fugitive sailor decision, a name by which it is known in the history of those dark days of the transaction period. But unfriendly legislation and one-sided court decisions were not the only factors in crushing the hopes of labor. This was a period of wonderful scientific discoveries of natural forces and mechanical inventions by which they could be utilized in saving labor. The grandmothers who boasted that they could paint three miles of thread in one day from sunrise to sundown lived to see their little granddaughters paint three thousand miles in ten hours with the aid of machinery. Similar improvements were introduced into every branch of industry. The machinery belonged to the employer and he added the saving to his profit. He did not need so many workmen to produce all that the people were unable to purchase, and the workmen were dismissed to join the mighty army of the unemployed. For a time, certain skilled workmen were unable to maintain living wages by means of organization, but continued improvements in machinery ultimately enabled common laborers to take their places and reduced the number of experts required to such a degree that their conditions was but little better than that of the unskilled. Among the best-paid organizations of the olden time was the locomotive engineers, but ultimately electricity took the place of steam, and the motormen from the ranks of common labor took the places of both an engineer and a fireman. The machine displaced three-fourths of the printers at first, and later a still larger number of what remained. By introducing the principles of multiplex telegraphy, which enabled one expert to operate machines at the same time in a number of separate offices in different parts of the world whenever the copy was the same. Labor economists called attention to this displacement of labor by machinery, but the press and the politicians in the service of the corporations claimed that this cheapening of production was of great benefit to the people by securing a corresponding reduction in prices. Finally, after a persistent agitation for years, the National Commissioner of Labor was required to make a careful examination, and in his report, among a multitude of similar items, we find that the labor cost of a $5 hut was only 34 cents, a $10 plow 79 cents, and so on to the end of a longer catalogue of commodities which the people always needed. The question was, who got the difference between the amount received by the actual producer and the price paid by the consumer? The answer was self-evident. Outside of clack hire, it must have gone to pay profits in some form to non-producers. But after this official demonstration that the lion's share of the wells created by productive labor went to non-producing speculators, the great masses of the people still continued to use their influence to perpetrate this inequitable system which practically confiscated the wells 
created by the labor to pay profits on speculative investments. The mass of the small dealers of that time were no better off, in many respects, than the wealth-producing laborers. But being in some sense a part of the profit-exacting system, they held to it longer, in the vain hope that a time might come when, by some fortuitous turn in business or lucky speculation, they could amass millions. As a class, they had never devoted themselves to an earnest and careful study of economic questions. But as long as the people came and purchased goods and left a profit in their hands, they were satisfied and paid no attention to the far-reaching influences which were surely paving the way to their ultimate failure in business. Hence, it was not until just before the end of the old civilization that they began to realize that something was the matter: sharp competition among the large number of small dealers. Reduced the average profits below a fair compensation for the labor expended, and the large combines with unlimited money capital were unable to meet the universal demand for cheap goods. The dealers were finding themselves crowded out of business. They blamed their customers for not giving them the preference, even if the large department stores could afford to sell for less. They demanded legislation against the large stores, and took an active interest in the antitrust agitation of the time. This opposition to trusts and department stores, like the farmers' organizations and trade unions, took a very narrow view of the situation. They saw the profits decreasing, and their sole object was to prevent this, without any reference to the interests of the people. Who, as purchasers of goods, must pay all the profits? The masses of the people understood their motives and did not hesitate to patronize department stores and purchase trust products, provided they could get them for less. They might have been able to protect themselves from the inordinate greed of the trusts and companies by taking their customers into partnership and, with their assistance, Organizing consumption and thus controlling distribution for the equal benefit of all, this would have been in exact accordance with the idea that had been handed down in the system of religion, that we should always do unto others as we would have them do unto us. The entire history of Arturia as an independent republic belongs to the transition period in the process of the world. And in a larger, but not so well defined, a sense, it extends to the discovery of the continents, and even to an earlier period, distinguished by the breaking up of the ancient religious hierarchy and the introduction of a constantly increasing number of warring sects. This was the revolutionary forces developed under the operations of natural law, in strict accordance. With the constitution of the human mind, which always tends towards the utmost possible development of the race, physically, mentally, and morally, these forces in the early stages of human development work so slowly that even the best-trained intellects do not discover their existence 
and hence have no power to intelligently cooperate with them, with a view to accelerating their own progress upward toward the highest possible plans of development. But it was during the last forty years of this transition period that all these forces became more apparent to the careful historian, and it is this to which I have more particularly directed your attention. Human selfishness on the lower plans of development constitutes the first step in the development of that higher selfhood, which is the predominating characteristic on the higher plans. During the last fifty years of the transition period, human selfishness, in the baser sense, was making its last struggle for existence as the controlling factor in human affairs. All classes of people were inspired to action by selfish interests, and these interests could not fail to clash. Out of these clashing between forces, they ultimately learned that the best and highest interest of every individual could always be secured by carefully guiding the interest of every other individual. Out of this was involved our present universal rule. Which governs our relations towards each other, of each for all and all for each, and hence all are equally secure in the exercise of every natural right and in the possession of absolute economic independence. The good power sought for and secured universal dominion over all the nations of the earth, and there being no other nations to conquer, in its ordinate greed. It continued to impose additional burdens upon the people. This met opposition first from one class and then from another, but all these movements were animated by the same element of selfishness, which characterized the gold power. The farmers organized to secure better conditions for themselves without any regard to the interests of the millions of wage workers and others upon whom they depended for a market. The workmen organized to secure better wages for the members of their unions, with no regard for any other class of people, or even for other workmen who did not belong to their fraternity. At the close of the old system, the small dealers and manufacturers were unanimous against the encroachments of the vast combines, who could undersell them. But they ignored the interests of the great mass of consumers. Upon whom they depended for market, selfishness, in the baser sense, guaranteed the failure of all these movements. No one class of people seeking to promote its own selfish interests was able to hold its own against the superior intelligence of the great financiers, who had planned to financially conquer the world by controlling the world's supply of gold. Through an organized system of creating debts, both actual for borrowed money and constructive as investments, which exacted tribute from the wealth-producing classes, this process of debt creating continued until, in this country, the entire volume of sixteen hundred millions of money of all kinds would have paid but a fraction of the annual charge for interest, dividends, etc. Upon investments and all the gold in the world, about four billion dollars would have paid but a fraction of the principal. But another 
and in the end, the most potent revolutionary force which was destined to emasate the people was the arousing of the moral sense of large numbers who had never turned their attention to the study of economic science, but whose souls revolted at the conditions imposed upon vast multitudes of people. The gold power. While still a mighty factor in the control of the religious press, and a large number of the leading religious teachers of the country was not able to steal the voice of the truest disciples of Christus, and this demanded that the spirit of the founder of their religion should be exemplified in the practical everyday affairs of life. They well understood. That if the people were doing to each other as they would have others do to them, there would be no such thing as poverty, with all its tendencies towards vice and crime. These pioneers of a diviner civilization, with nothing but a theological training, were perhaps not clear in their own minds as to just how this golden rule could be applied in business. Under the prevailing financial and commercial systems of the country, but they did believe that the idea in every human relation could be realized, and they insisted that the effort should be made by every true follower of Christus to establish the dominion of good upon earth, to the end that righteousness might prevail in human affairs. For this grand culmination. The operation of the revolutionary forces for the last fifty years had been a postgraduate course for the workers who were to set the machinery in motion, on the material plane, by which all the crushing burdens imposed by greed could be easily and speedily removed. And in this course, the mistakes made by the people had been the most potent educators, the producing classes. Had been induced to organize, because they felt that they were not getting their just share in the distribution of wealth, but to save that which was lost in the distribution, they made the strange mistake of organizing as producers. The farmer had no need of an organization to enable him to produce more wealth. The soil would produce just as much without such organization or with it. The same thing was true of mechanics, miners, and other wage workers who organized in their capacity of wealth producers. But as consumers, they could all stand on one platform, and being the market upon which all producers must depend, they would be masters of the situation. With an equal distribution of the benefits of such organization of consumption, it would be just as easy to pay dividends to labor, and thus increase their share in the distribution, as it was to pay dividends on capitalized investments. So it was that at a time when everything seemed hopeless, the few who never yielded to disappointments. And who had made an exhaustive study of existing economic conditions, reinforced the earnest followers of Christus, who were demanding the application of the golden rule in business by formulating methods by which this much-desired result could be attained. 
They have studied the moral problem that confronted the religionists from the objective side, and understood just how it must be solved along business lines. In as much as all material wealth was created by labor, and distributed by being bought and sold, it followed as a logical sequence that there was but one way by which every useful worker could secure a just share in the distribution, and that was to take charge of the business of exchange, buying and selling, and divide the benefits equally among all. Who united their efforts to establish the largest possible round of exchange between producers and consumers? This was simply the organization of the market for the express purpose of establishing equity in distribution by paying dividends to labor. The people had at least discovered the vital truth upon which the application of the golden rule depends. That organized consumption controls distribution. Organizations of consumers were affected with a view to concentrating their purchasing power through channels of their own, not to reduce prices, but to pool the net profits into a common fund for the equal benefit of all the members. A portion of this was set aside as an educational fund to extend the work. And the remainder was used to pay dividends to the members, who, as customers, had paid the profits into the common treasury. This was known as the dividend to labor, and it was always distributed equally, as it had been secured by the united purchasing power of all the members. And in order to secure this fund, which belonged alike to all. No member had added one cent to his or her cost of living. It was all a saving, as between the new equitable system of exchange and the old and wasteful profit system. This was a profit-saving business machine of which the producers, who constituted in the main the great markets of the world, could not be deprived, and with this. It became a matter of indifference as to who had immediate control of the labor-saving machinery of production. This movement had its origin in the West, where the people were more inclined to think for themselves. But the benefits were so decided and so easily secured that it spread rapidly. The first exchanges demonstrated that the use of money. Could be largely minimized, and banks were established as depositories for all the money that came into their hands, and to facilitate their financial relations with unorganized communities where money was still a necessity. These savings of money were held as a sacred trust to enable the members to pay taxes and debts in cases where the creditor. Could not be induced to take products at a fair price. Among themselves, they used exchange certificates, which were issued on the deposit of products or money, and for necessary labor. These certificates being issued on values which were seeking a market and redeemed in products needed for consumption and cancelled. 
constituted an idea currency that was always just equal to the demand, neither more nor less. The people learned by experience how easy it was to minimize the use of money, and the tendency of these decrease in the demand for money was to relatively increase the amount in circulation. It was easy now for the most unfamiliar with business methods to understand how the large operators, under the old system, had enriched themselves by making their settlements through. Great cleaning houses, where one obligation cancelled another, and only two or three percent of money had been used to pay balances, and they could see how even this balance among wealth producers could take the shape of a check against the future production, and money be entirely eliminated as a medium in the exchange of wealth. All the people who were doing the buying and selling through these exchanges were regularly supplied with carefully prepared literature on economic questions and business methods, and of general information as to the trend of current events, the progress of the new order which placed business on an ethnic basis, and all matters of advantage for an independent, cultured citizenship to understand. Then, for the first time, the multitudes began to realize the weakness of the fragile thread by which they had been bound to the triumphal car of capitalism. Their experience gave them confidence. They used the same business methods for the benefit of the many that had enabled the few to concentrate in their own hands four fifths of the wealth of the country. It was. Therefore, no untried experiment. They were only exercising the same kind of business sagacity that had been used by the money kings to financially conquer the world. Just in proportion as they decreased the demand for money, it flowed in upon them in exchange for their products at a steadily increasing price. They had established a debt-paying instead of a debt-creating system of business, and in the course of time, the debts were all paid. The necessity for legal money had disappeared. The people were free from its exactions, and all they had to do was to produce what they consumed, and consume what they produced, exchanging equivalent for equivalent for the equal benefit of all. And thus, the world had been saved from its thraldom to greed by the establishment of the kingdom of God, and His righteousness, as had been enjoyed by Christus at the beginning of the old religious system two thousand years before. This, which was enjoyed at the beginning of the dispensation, was realized at its close, and hence, the first became the last. Because the last was the first reduced to practice in human affairs. End of chapter twelve, part two.